We are going to continue our talk from yesterday, and I want to put our pyramid back up here again, because we want to be talking about that. Let me see if I can bring this out here. Not bad for an old man, huh? I'll tell you, once you hit 50, it's all uphill. Okay. Oh, yeah. I never thought I'd live to see 40. Here I am, 51 years old. Have a grandchild. Never thought I'd see that either. Okay. What was on the bottom? You can tell I'm not a teacher, can't you? I'm glad I wasn't Egyptian. It would have been pretty bad. What was on the bottom? Spirituality. Don't look at your notes. Okay, what was on the next rung? Social. What was on the next rung? Psychological. Psychological. What was on the next rung? Emotional. And the very last was physical. Okay, and then we talked about how when you have your base built correctly, and listen, young people, the longer, the longer you spend in this phase and this phase, the better grounded you're going to be. These phases, the spirituality and the social, take place in social settings, not one-on-one. People can fool you one-on-one. They can't fool you in a social setting. Because their true character, when you have, when you have multiple inputs coming to somebody and they have multiple personalities they're having to deal with, you can pick up real quick how they relate. You really can. That's why this part is so important to be in a, in a social setting where you have many different people together, many different young people together, doing things together. Uh, and, you know, like MV meetings or church or social gatherings or even studying together, whatever it might be. You can really tell a lot about a person in that, in that, in that um, era, in that area. So does this have to take a long time? Are we talking about a three, four, five-year process? No. This can be, this can be a, a, a one-year process, one-and-a-half-year process up to about here, probably a one-year process. And then this, this last part can go fairly quickly. This last part can go fairly quickly because once you've laid the groundwork, you can move fairly fast from that point on. It's usually, you know, once somebody gets a house framed in, the rest of it goes pretty quick, doesn't it? Okay, so it's the same principle. Psalm 127, verse 1. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain who build it. So that's the principle that you're talking about there. But we want to look at a couple of, of examples in the Scripture on these things. And I want to turn back to Ephesians chapter 5 again for a moment, because that's really where we lay the groundwork for this whole talk about marriage. And the, the two things that God created in the Garden of Eden or left humanity in the Garden of Eden as a symbol of his care and concern for them were what? Sabbath and marriage. Satan has destroyed. And, and really, there's three things God gave us at the Garden of Eden for the church. One was marriage. One was Sabbath. What was the other? Prophecy. Didn't he say in Genesis 3.15 a prophecy about Jesus coming? And Satan has destroyed all three. I hope sometime that we can have a wonderful get-together on just how to study 
prophecy. Our church is under great attack on prophecy. And if we don't understand our biblical roots, our, our, our pioneer roots, what it means to be a historicist, what it means to, to let the Scripture interpret itself, we'll get into all kinds of weird things. I had a man come into my office. I'll tell you, it takes a lot of creativity to pervert prophecy. And people can really be creative. A man came into my office with a suitcase full of books, and he was going to... He had his own agenda, and I, I asked him one question. I asked him one question. This is based on the spirit of prophecy. Ellen White says, when any man or woman comes who wants to bring in something new on prophecy, go back to the pioneers and see what they taught. That's her, that's her word to us today. And if they would remove one pin or pillar from what the pioneers taught, she says, have nothing to do with them. So I asked people one question based on the spirit of prophecy. I asked him, when's the last time you read Uriah Smith's book, Daniel and the Revelation? They go, oh, well, you know, he, he was just, he was all wet. And if they feel that way about that book, I don't talk to them. Because Ellen White endorsed that book. I have, if you want the manuscript, I'll give it to you. She said that book should be given to every new convert. It would have precious light so long as probationary time should last. That, uh, that if you wanted to have an entirely new religious experience, read that book. Anyway, that's for another time. But I'll tell you what, when, when my daughter was interested in some young men, the first question, you might think this is stupid, but the first question I asked these boys, do you like reading the pioneers? It's the first question I asked them. And they said, I really have never read the pioneers. A little red flag went up in my mind. I didn't write them off, but a red flag went up in my mind. Because even Jesus... In Luke chapter 24, when he was on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples and, you know, were thinking, wow, we thought this was the Messiah. We thought for sure he's one who would come and set us free. When Jesus had their attention, when they were in doctrinal error, when they didn't understand prophecy, when they didn't understand the sanctuary, what did Jesus do with them? Did he say, hey guys, it's me, Jesus, remember me? No. The Bible says in Luke that beginning at the pro- Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them the things concerning himself. Where did Jesus take people in doctrinal error? Back to their pioneers. Back to their pioneers. That's what we need to do today. And we have the spirit of prophecy mandate to do that. Go back to the pioneers. She said, let the words of the dead speak. Young people, if you want an entirely new religious experience, go back to the pioneers. That's where the deep reading is. You want to expand your brain? You think anatomy and physiology is hard? You think, you think, um, psychopharmac- uh, you think that pharmacology is tough? No way. Read the 2300 Days in the Sanctuary. That's tough. That's tough. Anyway, that was extra credit. Let's talk now here at Ephesians chapter 5. Because notice what Paul does here. He likens marriage to, the church, to, to Christ's relationship with the church. And it's really interesting, after he tells the wives what their duty is, and he tells the husbands what their duty is, notice what he says in verse 29. He says, For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Friends, that's, that's Adam talking, Genesis 2.23. And then he says in verse 31, For this cause, for this cause, shall a man leave his father and his mother. For what cause? For what he just said in verse 30. 
Because Jesus left heaven to join himself to us in his human nature, in his fleshly nature. Because he took on him the seed of Abraham, it says in the book of Hebrews. For this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother. Because it is a symbol of what Christ is to the church. And they shall be joined. That word in the Hebrew, in the Greek means glued. He shall leave his father and his mother and be glued unto his wife. And they shall be what? One flesh. Just like Jesus says, I and my father are one. You can be one in me. It's a symbology of what marriage is. When I joined my, my life to my wife, we became one flesh. And the more I live with that woman, the more I get to know her. And the more I get to know her, the more I think like her. I can look at her face and know what she's thinking. It's scary. I'm starting to think like a woman, brother. I, I remember, I remember when, when I was 19 years old, I had this girlfriend. I didn't understand this business. I wish I had. But I had this girlfriend. And man, she was, she was going to be my dream woman. I, I just knew she was the one for me. And after about three months, she came to me one day and she said, You know, Dane, she said, you're like a pair of jeans. You wear them for a while, you get tired of them. Oh, man. She said, I'm moving on. Oh, man, I was slain. Faded in three months. Terrible. So I went to Elder John Thurber, who was the pastor at Sligo Church where I grew up. And I, he was about 72 years old. You know, this silver hair, you know, you really trusted the man. And I said, Elder Thurber, I said, man, I said, I don't know what's wrong, man. I said, this girl just dumped me like a bag of, 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 of bricks. I said, I can't figure women out. He looked at me and said, son, how old are you? I said, I'm 19 years old. He looked at me and he said, I'm 73. I can't figure him out either. <laughs> But he said, God made it that way. God made their brain. When the Bible says male and female created he, them, the Bible means it. And those of you who are up on the study of the brain know that science is starting to bear that out. Boys' brains are wired different from girls' brains. Even a male chimpanzee's brain is wired different from a female chimpanzee's brain. They've done studies where they put toys in a room with baby chimpanzees, boys and girl chimpanzees, and the boy chimpanzees go to the trucks and the girl chimpanzees go to the dolls. They're wired different. You see a boy pick up a doll, he picks her up by his arm, you know. You see a little girl pick up a doll, she goes like this. How do they know how to do that? They're wired different, aren't they? How does a man carry a baby? Not by its arm, I hope. <laughs> they, you know, they, they kind of hold it like this. You see a woman pick up a baby, poop right on her hip. You know, walks around like this. Men don't carry them like that. We are wired different. Now, notice what it says here. Verse 32. This is a great mystery. Now, notice he had just talked about marriage. Right in verse 31. He had just talked about marriage. And he says, this is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Do you see that? Are you with me? Are you still sleeping? Are you with me? Notice. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself and see the wife that she reverence her husband. 
Now, ladies, if you want your husbands to love you in a biblical way, you've got to follow this part of the, of the law. You say, oh, you're a chauvinist. No, I'm not. I'm an exegetical person. I'm exegeting here. Isn't that an impressive word? Exegeting. If you want your husband to fulfill his gospel mandate, you must fulfill yours. And gentlemen, if you want your wife to reverence you and to acquiesce to your, to your leadership in the home, you are under obligation by God to love that woman as Christ loves the church. Don't expect your wife to submit to you unless you are loving her like Christ loves the church. I remember there was a point in time when I just started understanding this. <laughs> I smile because I remember what my home used to be like and what it's like now. It's a whole different ballgame. Let me tell you something, young people. When <clears throat> I wish I'd had this documented because nobody believes it when I tell them, but I am telling you, and I don't want to lose heaven by telling a lie, so I'm not going to lie to you. The day that we changed the way we related to each other as husband and wife, Within 24 hours, my children had changed the way related to us. It was amazing. It was amazing. When the proper home roles are put into, into jibe, the Lord begins to work. Well, the Bible says in many places, Genesis 2, 1 Corinthians 11, Ephesians 5, Colossians and 1 Peter and many others, that God has left the man in charge. I didn't make the decision. God made it for me. I got it by default. So don't call me a chauvinist. Don't call me any of those things. You talk to God about it. And we were facing a decision. And it was a big decision. And when a couple faces a decision, they must go to the Bible and the spirit of prophecy to sort out the facts. They must go to prayer together to sort out the facts. They must study to sort out the facts. And as we studied and as we prayed, I felt the decision should be one way. Vicky felt the decision should be the other way. We continued to pray. We continued to study. And this went over a period of about a week and a half. And we continued to study and pray and look at the counsel and look in the spirit of prophecy. And finally, we had to make our decision. And I said, sweetheart, I still feel that it should be done this way. And she said, well, honey, I still feel it should be done the other way. And she said, but the Word of God gives preference to you as the leader, so we'll do it your way. Now, it wasn't a moral issue. I wasn't, you know, we weren't looking at that. We were looking at just an issue in the home. That happened twice so far in the, in the 17 years since we've understood these principles. Just twice. Most of the time we come to a decision, and we, I see sometimes she's right. Listen, friends, if you win every argument, you're married to a loser. Remember, she's going to win sometime. You're going to win sometime. But it's a win-win situation. Well, one time we had the same process, and I was wrong. And I thought, oh, man, I'm going to hear it now. Yeah, I told you so. I should have made it. Yeah, I thought, I'm really going to hear it. And bless her heart, my precious wife said, Sweetheart, I don't know why the Lord let you make the wrong decision, but apparently there's a lesson for us to learn. So let's just move on learn the lesson. Do you think that a marriage grows in that environment? Absolutely. A marriage grows in that environment. Marriage grows in that. There was, <laughs> there was another time that we got in a little argument about something. Is it wrong to have an argument? No, you're going to have arguments. Just don't let your son go down on your wrath. Make sure you don't start yelling at each other and calling each other's names. Remember, Never get historical in an argument. 
When you get historical, you get hysterical. <laughs> Happens every time. Never bring up the past. The past is dead. The Lord never brings up our old sins, does He? Well, I got a little bit out of control, and I stormed out of the house because my wife said something, and I slammed the door behind me, and the Lord said, Fine, priest, you are. I said, but Lord, did you hear what she... The Lord said, wait a minute, Dane. We're not dealing with Vicky now. We're dealing with you. Fine priest you are. I said, but Lord, did you hear what... The Lord said, Dane, leave her out of it. I'm dealing with you. He said, I want you to go back in and apologize to your wife for what you did. I said, yeah, right. Uh-uh. I'm not going to go back in there. She can apologize to me. She was wrong. The Lord said, no, there is no excuse that you walked out and slammed the door on your wife. He said, a true Christian would not have done that, Right? I didn't say it that fast. <laughs> Finally, after the Lord argued with me for a while, I said, yes, Lord, you're right. And he said, okay, go back and apologize to your wife. And the Lord said, and don't apologize. I'm sorry, to, but if you hadn't, that's not an apology. So I walked back inside. It was the longest walk of my life. And I walked back in, and my wife was sitting in a room. And I walked in, and I tapped her on the shoulder and said, sweetheart, who do you think was there tempting me to say something? And the devil, give her a piece of your mind. She deserves a piece. You know what happens if you give somebody a piece of your mind? Soon it's all gone. <laughs> I went in and I said, sweetheart, I am so sorry for my ungodly behavior. There was no excuse for what I did. And I want to ask you to forgive me. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't that easy? And you know what my wife said? My wife looked at me and she said, Sweetheart, there's no excuse for how I treated you. And I said, Man, Lord, you're good. If I just do my part, you do yours. Lord said, You got it, son. Learn that lesson. You see, I cannot change my spouse's heart. Only God can. Only God can. The only heart I can change is mine. And even that I can't change. I've got to give the Lord permission to do it for me. So notice... Now, it's really interesting if you turn back to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. We're talking about practical Christianity here today, friends. This is practical stuff. 1 Peter chapter 3. Notice Peter says, Likewise, ye wives. Now, it's really interesting. Anytime the, 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 the authors of the Scriptures are talking about this submission to a husband to the wife... Nine times out of ten, it follows a text like First, like first Peter chapter 2, verse 25. For as ye were sheep going astray, but now are returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. See what he's saying there? You've had to submit yourself to God. He's rescued you from sin. He's put you on a new path. Submission, doing, you know, leading by God's authority. Then they go into, likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. That if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Whose adorning, let it not be with the outward plating of hair and the wearing of gold or the putting on of apparel. But the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible. Even the ornament of a, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. You know, it's really interesting. As, as researchers do the studies, women talk about 30,000 words a day. Have you ever noticed you drive down the freeway and you see a woman sitting in her car? She's talking and there's nobody in the car. 
There's nobody there. She's talking and looking. And you get up to the stop, there's a little baby in a car seat going, you know, baby can't understand a lick the mom's saying. My mom is talking to the baby. You look at a mother going through a supermarket. Oh, honey, you know, baby's two weeks old. Honey, look at this pretty orange. Isn't it pretty? And the baby's just going, you know, doesn't know what the mom is saying. But God trained the mother to be a teacher. She's got 30,000 words a day. The average man speaks 15,000 words a day. Man come home from, the man come home, comes home from work, his 15,000 are shot. She's still got half to go. <laughs> now she wants to talk to an adult. Hey, honey. I mean, he, he's, he's bankrupt. You know, he's, but this is something that we have to understand. Something we have to understand is men. And that's what we're going to look at here in this passage. But let it be the hidden... You know, Ellen White says women are in danger of losing their brain power by talking too much. She says that. Come on, men, give me an amen. Yeah. Which in the sight of God is of great price. Now notice verse 5. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves. Now notice how they adorned themselves. Being in subjection to their own husbands. That's how the godly women adorned themselves. Even as Sarah, verse 6, obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, now notice, they never leave the women out, or the men out. They talk about the women and they talk about the men. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. Okay, when you're on the way home, you think, okay, I've already exhausted my 15,000 words. My sweetheart's got 30,000 more. Lord, give me some words. Understand, she's been there talking to that little baby or the children. Hey, listen, friends, when you're at the office, gentlemen, you're only fighting for your soul. Mama's at home fighting for hers and the kids. When I was working, I prayed all day long that the Lord would give my wife grace to win the souls of those little ones. That's my job as the priest. It's my job. I was praying for them all through the day. When I would travel and go overseas, I always kept my watch on Eastern time of the United States because I wanted to know when my family was sitting down for evening worship I knew it would be at 630 because when I wasn't there my wife was the priest but when they sat down to prayer no matter what time it was where I was if I was awake I knelt in prayer and prayed for my family at worship time that's my godly role that's my biblical role that's my biblical mandate is to remember my first job on this earth is to raise a family without spot or wrinkle or any such thing to present it holy and unblameable before the Lord at the day of judgment that's my job likewise ye husbands dwell with them according to knowledge giving honor unto the wife gentlemen how many of us who are married give honor unto our wife I still open the door for my wife I still open it for her. She's my queen. Man, I love that woman so much. She's my queen. When we, when we wake up in the morning, I just look at her and say, mm, 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 you are fine. <laughs> hey, I want to tell you something. I learned that from my Uncle Otz. My Uncle, my uncle Otz, he was 82 years old. His wife became a Seventh-day Adventist after they got married, and she prayed for that man for 22 years. He was a hardened, worldly cab driver. One day she heard this, boom, he came right inside, Mary, Mary, call the pastor, call the pastor, quick. She said, ah, that's what happened. He said, I was in downtown Baltimore, and I, I took a little nap and I had a dream, and I saw fire and brimstone falling out of heaven, and God said, Ots Chelp, this is for you unless you repent. i got to repent, I want to become an Adventist. 
he became an Adventist. And when he was 82 years old, one year at camp meeting, they had a little trailer they'd come to camp meeting in every year. And Mary was this little wrinkled up, you know, little, she, she'd kind of walk around like this. She was still a real godly woman. They just loved the Lord with all their hearts. And she came out one day, and I just kind of gave her a little pound of rope and said, Oh, you're a fox. <laughs> and she went, Ah, the children are here. I said, That's all right, they'll understand. <laughs> That's what keeps a marriage glowing. That's what keeps a marriage alive. I mean, it was great. I'll never forget that. Let your wife, let your spouse know that you still have eyes for them. That you still have something in your heart for them. Notice, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Now, if you're moving and you've got a beautiful vase or vase, as they say, you know, some people. If you've got this beautiful vase and you want to, you know it's weak, it's old. What do you do with it? You just toss it in a box? Man, you wrap it up and you tape it up and you wrap it up and you pack it in peanuts because it's a weaker vessel. Gentlemen, protect your wife. Protect your spouse. Don't be, you know, not in a weak way, but in a, in a caring way and in a godly way. Guard them against the incursion of error. Guard them against the, the intrusions of the outside world. Guard them because it's the weaker, weaker vessel. Now notice, as being heirs together of the grace of life, now notice the last part, that your prayers be not hindered. Many men feel their prayers don't go any higher than the ceiling because they're not treating their wives right and God won't answer their prayer. That's what it says in the Bible. That's serious stuff. If you don't feel like God's answering your prayers and you're married, look at how you're treating your wife. Are you treating your wife like Christ treats the church? When I had my children at home, I was selling for a company called Space Labs. We sold critical care monitoring devices. Many of our salesmen made in the middle six figures more than the cardiologists they were calling on. I was in the top 10% of the sales force in my company. I was on the fast track to a very lucrative career of middle management, upper management. And I knew I only had one shot to raise my children. And I got a, I got a call one day giving me a position that was very lucrative. I turned it down. And one of my friends called and said, Dane, did you actually turn down that job? You're a fool. You're only 31 years old. You're getting a job usually offered to 50-year-old men. Why did you turn it down? I said, because I got sheep at home, brother. That's why. Gentlemen, we've got to set our priorities early in life. You are not here to make a big bank account. You are not here to buy a bigger car, bigger house, bigger boat, bigger plane, or anything else. You are here to save your family. Bottom line, ladies, if you have a husband that loves you like that, can you respect that man? It's pretty half-hearted, ladies. I want to show you something else here now. I want to show you something else. Let's turn back to Joseph. Let's turn back to Joseph. By the way, does anybody have a watch I can stick up here? My, my watch is not here. There's a oh, high-tech stuff. Okay, 340. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. I'm going to, I want to illustrate the pyramid now from the Bible. Genesis chapter 39. Notice what it says in Genesis chapter 39 and verse 6. 
Potiphar, we're talking about Joseph here. Potiphar had left all that he had in Joseph's hands, and he knew not what he had save the bread which he did eat. And Joseph was a godly person and well-favored. He was a handsome dude. You might say that he was a hunk. But Joseph had a little problem. Verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 10. And it came to pass, verse 9, let's go back there. There is none greater in this house than I, and neither hath he kept anything back from me but thee, Potiphar's wife, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against who? Potiphar? God. You see, here Joseph is illustrating our pyramid. Joseph knew that if you put physical first, you're, you're sinning against God because the spirituality should have come first. Joseph knew that this was an upside-down pyramid, not only because she was already married, because he didn't know her on a spiritual, social, or psychological level yet. And it came to pass, as she spake to Joseph day by day, that he hearkened not unto her to lie with her or to be with her. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do business, and there was none of the men of the house therein. And she had arranged that, by the way. She had arranged that. And she caught him by his coat, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran from the room. Now, gentlemen, there is a wonderful guideline for us today. Notice he didn't stay and argue with her anymore. He had already told her where he stood. And she is such a seductress that now she grabs him by the clothes and she tries to rip his clothes off. Now, ladies, you don't understand the temptation that would be for a man. To know that a woman, a guy, a, 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 apparently a beautiful woman, is that interested in an affair. But Joseph was so committed to God. He understood relationships so well that he didn't walk out of the room. The Bible says he tore out of there. And he didn't look back. You know, before I travel, I do a lot of traveling... Before I travel and go to an airport, especially this time of year, I have to go in real serious prayer. Because I know when I get into the airport, there's going to be all these little Delilahs walking around. These little seductresses walking around. And some of these ladies, look at they are poured into their clothes. They look like a jello mold. Just, their clothes are so tight, you wonder how they can even breathe. And I don't know if any of you gentlemen have noticed this, but as the ladies walk towards you in the airport, they lock their eyes on yours and they kind of go. <laughs> and as you try to move away, they walk right along. And nothing bothers one of those women more than when you just keep looking straight ahead and just don't even look. And they kind of keep trying to, you know. <laughs> do. And I may be exaggerating a bit, but they're out there. And as a man... God commands me to keep my eyes where He wants them to be. And here's my motto. Neck up. It's a good motto. Neck up. The only thing I have a right to see is your eyes, your nose, and your mouth. That's all I have a right to see because the rest of it's not mine. Now, here's another principle, ladies. The Bible says... That you, in Hebrews chapter 13, I believe it is, that you are to guard the feeble knees and the tired hands that hang down. You are to guard against causing someone else to sin. 
And ladies, as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, if you are dressed in a seductive way, if you are advertising any part of your body through tight-fitting clothing, you are breaking the commandments of God. Because the commandments say, Thou shalt not bear false witness. You say, wait a minute, how does that bear in false witness? When you wear tight clothing and dress in a seductive way, you are telling a man, this is yours, but it's not mine. It's not mine. And God, if you, if you as a woman, as a Christian woman, dress in a, you know, men like to follow things to the natural conclusion. It, it's been shown, and, and Madison Avenue spends millions, if not billions of dollars a year studying what people look at and what gets them to buy or what gets them in a, in a, in a, in a um, aggressive mode. And there are two shapes that attract men's eyes more than any other. Pairs and triangles. Look at a pack of Marlboro cigarettes. What's the shape on the pack of a Marlboro cigarettes? It's a triangle. Think of a woman's anatomy. There's certain parts that look like triangles. There's other parts that look like pears. You see, Satan knows that. And Satan has designed a fashion modality so that when women get dressed in the morning, they're dressed in such a way that it, 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 it attracts... And some ladies will say, oh, but they're just dirty old men. Wait a minute. I can't help how God wired my brain. God, why, is, why is it getting so quiet? Okay, gentlemen. You who are in the medical profession, you who are just living, if you're breathing, you can understand this one. Who's the sexual aggressor in any relationship, man or woman? Man, God made us that way. Isn't that right? Man made us that way. Men are very visual creatures. We are visually stimulated. Men, ladies are more stimulated by touch and by caressing. and by, it, gets, it takes a lot longer to get a woman turned on sexually. A man, they can be there just like that. He's laughing down here. See that? That's all right. That's the way we're wired, right? Satan understands that. Ladies, I want to beg you, please, give us at least one day off when we come to church. Please. Remember, we were in Sabbath school one day, and the Sabbath school teacher was very well endowed. And she was bending over, giving all the little junior boys their junior guys. These little boys were going, you can see north to south. She's passing out. Our little boy came out and said, Mama, I guess Sabbath school teacher shouldn't bend over, should they? We need to understand. We don't have time to go there and look, but if you look at Genesis chapter 3, what was the first thing Adam and Eve did wrong? Is they ate wrong, correct? What was the second thing they did wrong? They dressed wrong. The Bible says that they covered themselves in aprons in the, he in the Hebrew. And it says the first thing God did when He came to them was He put them into coats to cover them up. Now, if you go to Exodus, uh, Exodus, uh, where is it in Exodus? Somewhere in Exodus, you can go find it. The very first thing that God did for the children of Israel was when they came out of, out of Egypt was what? He gave them manna to eat. What was the second thing that He did? He gave them a ribbon of blue. Look, look at Exodus, uh, Numbers chapter 15. Turn there for just a minute. Numbers. How come others numbers? Numbers chapter 15. Speak unto the children of Israel and bid them, verse 38, 
and bid them that they make fringes in the borders of their garment throughout all their generations, that they put upon the fringe of their borders a ribbon of blue, and it shall be unto you for a fringe that ye may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord your God. Friends, our wardrobe should remind us of God's commandments, not of Givenchy and Liz Claiborne and all the others. It should remind us of God that ye may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord your God to do them, that ye seek not after your own heart and your own eyes. You see, God knew that our eyes are easily drawn after the fashions of the world, after the lusts of the world, and showing off these wonderful bodies that God has given us. But God said, that's not your job. Notice, you should remember and do all my commandments and be holy unto the Lord your God. In this, I wish we had more time because in this part of my Bible I have six Spirit of Prophecy comments where Ellen White comments specifically on that chapter, bringing it home to today, saying that God will notice the dress of His people at the end of time. Now, have you ever wondered why that woman touched the hem of Jesus' garment? That's why. That's why. She touched the ribbon of blue. What did it stand for? Remembering God's law. Remembering His commandments. Obeying God's law. She was saying in that one touch, Lord, I want to be obedient. I want to be your child. And that's why Jesus said, I perceive that virtue has left me. You see, there's, there, it's a lot to be a Seventh-day Adventist. It requires a change in everything about our lives. The way we eat the way we drink, the way we dress, the way we entertain ourselves, the way we relate to each other. Everything we do changes when we come to Jesus. What does the Bible say? All things have passed away. New things are made. We're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Now, it's very interesting. Look over at Isaac in Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24. Notice what happens here. Isaac is 40 years old. His father has sent, his father has sent um, one of his servants out to find Isaac, his wife. Abraham has been much in prayer. Isaac has been much in prayer. And notice in verse um, 60, let's see, verse 63. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field at eventide. What's Isaac doing? He's praying. He's saying, Lord, please. Let the servant bring back just the woman you have picked for me. Young people, if you are considering choosing a new mate, you should be double in prayer as you've ever been before. Double in prayer. Double in Bible study. Double in the spirit of prophecy. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field at eventide, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, the camels were coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And remember, this is the first time these two have met. And when she saw Isaac, she lighted off the camel. For she, had said unto the, for she had said unto the servant, What man is this that walketh in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is thy master. Therefore she took a veil and covered herself. Isn't that a beautiful story? Now notice, she was doing what, what, what she knew a godly woman should do, and that is cover herself to protect the man that she was about to, to, to meet. Ladies, Cover yourselves. Men, it's just as wrong for you to show off your big pecs and your big biceps. Have you ever noticed when a guy walks out, he kind of walks like this? You know, they're they're just really self-absorbed. There's only one thing that we should be concerned with in this life, and that is giving honor and glory to God. 
And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Now look at verse 67. And Isaac brought Rebekah into his mother Sarah's tent. That is so touching. The first thing he did is, let me tell you about my mom. Let me tell you what she was like. We're running out of time real quick. What time we got here? I got eight minutes, seven minutes. And we're only about, well, that's all right. Okay, I promise you I'd give you ten things to look for in a mate. Ladies, we're going to start with you. What do you look for when you're looking for a guy? Number one. Number one. Does he know how to study his Bible? First thing. Not is he cute? Did you see Jimmy? He's so cute. He's a dream. Yeah, you know what? Dreams turn into nightmares sometimes. Does he know how to study his Bible? Spirituality. You say, well, how am I supposed to know if he studies his Bible? You'll be able to tell. What does he talk about in Sabbath school? Does he, does he, does he, is he a part of the conversation in the Sabbath school class? Or does he just sit there like a bump on a log? Number two, does he enjoy talking about spiritual things? More importantly, does he initiate spiritual conversations? And listen, young ladies, everywhere my wife and I go, we have ladies coming up to my wife. I never counsel a woman by myself, ever. If she wants to counsel with me, my wife will be with me. If she doesn't want to counsel my wife with me, she doesn't want counsel. She wants something else. But everywhere we go, the ladies will say to my wife, how can I get my husband to be a spiritual leader? There's no greater curse than to be in a marriage where the husband is not the spiritual leader. Does he initiate conversations on spiritual things? Number three, does he know how to sweat off the basketball court? You don't want to marry a sport jock. A man who only knows to play basketball is no good in life. Is he industrious? Can he do more than one job? I trained my son to know how to run a chainsaw. He's an airplane mechanic. He knows how to cut down trees. He knows how to build things. He knows how to do many different jobs because I want my son to be a jack of all trades. Number three, does he know how to sweat off a basketball court? Number four, how does he treat his mother. Watch how he treats his mother. If his mother makes him a meal and he just runs off with it and doesn't say thank you, he's not your man. Does he give his mother little courtesies? I remember once years ago, my son was starting to feel his testosterone cur coursing through his veins. And he mouthed off to his mother. He had just gotten his pilot's license. He was 16 years, 17 years old. And I walked into the room and I said, Excuse me, did I hear you mouth off to your mother? He said, Yes. I said, That's it. No flying for you for one month. He said, What? I said, Yeah, if I can't trust you to respect your mother's authority on the ground, how can I expect you to trust the air traffic controller's authority in the sky? You might kill somebody, buddy. You are grounded for one month. 
He got tears and said, Dad, spank me. Do anything, but don't, let me, don't take my flying away from me. I said, no, buddy, you're grounded one month. How does he treat his mother? Number five, can he someday afford to buy diapers? In other words, can he support you? Oh, but love will just make it all up. He's my Prince Charming. Yeah, but he's riding a donkey. You want somebody on a stallion. Can he someday afford to buy diapers? Number six, how does he spend his Sundays? Hey, Mac, want to come over and watch the, the Colts game? Sure. What comes after that? Well, the Redskins run over to that. Oh, let's do that. And all day long, they're watching sports. Uh-uh. I'm sorry. I wish we had time to talk about competitive sports, but we don't. Number seven, how does he look at other women? You watch that guy as another woman walks by. If he's going like this, sorry, not for you. His eyes should be nowhere but yours. My wife knows that when another woman walks by, she'll say, Dane, did you see that woman? I say, no. Did you see how she was? No, I didn't see, sweetheart. I've trained myself to not look. Neck up. Remember, that's my motto. Neck up. Number eight, can he make decisions? Nothing worse than marrying a wimp. Can he make decisions? And I mean, not always fast, but can he just, is he afraid? I would rather be married to someone who makes a bad decision than someone who makes no decision at all. At least he's doing something. You don't want to be married to a corpse. Life is full of decisions. You've got to have a man who knows how to make decisions, even in little things. If he's always asking you where you want to go, tell him where to go. No. <clears throat> uh, number nine. Does he notice little things? I remember one day when Gina had just reached her first menstrual cycle. Now I have two women in the house, right? You know, gentlemen, I don't know how Solomon did it. 500 wives? Man. I have two women in the house. And Vicky came downstairs one morning on Sabbath morning, and I said, mm, sweetheart, you look wonderful. You, you look more beautiful every Sabbath. I just can't figure out what's going on. Gina didn't talk to me all the way to church. And she didn't talk to me all the way home. And I said to Vicky, I said, what's, your, what's with Gina? What's wrong with her? And she said, I don't know. Go ask her. So I went to Gina and said, sweetheart, what's wrong? She said, you didn't tell me I look nice. I got two women now. And let me tell you, gentlemen, when your little girl gets to her first menstrual cycle, you better take her out to eat and be her boyfriend or she'll find one other than you. And I would take my little girl out every year on her birthday and many other times. I'd buy her a new dress and we'd go shopping. I hate shopping. <laughs> you know, I can't. My wife will say, Dane, let's go shopping just for fun. Fun? <laughs> and she tries on 15 different dresses. You know, I mean, when I get dressed in the morning, that's it. I'm dressed. I don't need to take anything off. I'm dressed. 
she likes to, she just does it for fun. And she'll go, oh, let's go home. I've had my fun. I go in to buy a shirt. I go over to the rack. 15 and a half, 34. Here it is. She says, sweetheart, where are you going? I'm buying my shirt. But look at all the other. Yeah, I know, but those are, I, I want this one. But honey, look at all, look, go try some on. I don't want to, I'm dressed. I need anything else. Does he notice little things? When you get your hair done, does he notice? Now, this is after you progress beyond, you know, this phase down here. You're up in this area now. When you're starting to notice these things. Does he notice little things? Even down here, though, you can notice if he notices little things. But on other people, in other ways. Number 10. Is he a social superman? <laughs> is he a social superman? He's got to be the center of everybody's attention. He's always got to be out there cracking the jokes and doing all those things. Is he a social superman? Uh-uh. Egomaniacs are not good at marriage. Last one. Does he go out of his way to protect your purity? Does he go out of his way to protect your purity? Any man who touches you before he has your permission is not worthy of your affection. Any man who suggests he should be able to touch you before he has your permission and God's permission should be run from as Joseph ran from Potiphar's wife. Okay, let's wrap this up real quick. Guys, <clears throat> what do you look for in a mate? Almost done. Number one, can she discuss spiritual things? Here we are again, back down here. The number one notice, number one priority is does she have a good body? That's not even on the list. It's not even on the list. I dated a girl once. She, she was the most. She was a beauty queen. I mean, she was almost as beautiful as my wife. But the more I got to know this girl, the uglier she got. One day I woke up and said, "Is she drinking ugly juice?" I mean, this girl is getting ugly. It was her character. It was her character. She got ugly. I said, Lord Jesus, thank you for... I, didn't, I wasn't even a Christian. I, I was an Adventist, but not an Adventist. You know what I'm talking about? And I said, Lord, thank you for protecting me from that witch. <laughs> number two. Number two. Here's the only time... By the way, you know the only part of the body that the Bible calls beautiful? The feet. That's it. The feet. Number two. Does she dress to attract attention? Does she dress to attract attention? If she does, she's not going to be stable in a marriage relationship. Number three, does she know how to study her Bible? And I don't mean just a little, bio, you know, just a little Sabbath school lesson. I mean deep bio, Peter Gregory Bible study. <laughs> We're going to call it PGBS. Peter Gregory, is she good at PGBS? Number four, does she know, now this is going to shock some of you, does she know how to shop? Does she know how to shop? What do I mean by that? Here's the motto for shopping. Pray before you pay. 
My wife knows. Now, we have a budget. She's got a budget every month for things she can buy. But she knows that when she comes home, the first thing I'm going to ask her is, Vic, did you pray about it? Did you pray about it? And she's told me many times, is this right, sweetheart? You've taken things back because you knew I was going to ask you, did you pray about it? Just shake your head like this. <laughs> she's pleading the fifth. Okay? Knowing how to shop is not shop till you drop. It's pray before you pay. That's what you want. Number five, does she constantly demand your attention? Can you imagine living with something like that for the rest of your life? Now, if she's constantly demanding attention, maybe you're not giving her enough attention. So you've got to look at yourself too. But someone who's constantly you know, demanding your attention is very, is very insecure. Number six, does she reciprocate with little kindnesses? Heard of a young man once who spent a hundred bucks to fix his girlfriend's brakes. She didn't even give him a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Come on, give me a break. She said, Well, I can't afford it. You can't afford a dollar fifty and you spent a hundred bucks? Can she afford does she does she reciprocate with little kindnesses? Number seven. Does she believe in meals on wheels? Or can she cook? Is she a nuker? Or is she a cooker? That's important. Number eight. Is she career-minded? Or is she care-minded? Nothing wrong with a woman. I, 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 we told our daughter, you cannot get married until you have a career lined up. You have to have something you can do if that husband should die or become incapacitated so that you can support your family. But if all she wants to do is have a career, that's a different story. Number nine, does she know how to smile? Can you imagine waking up to a, a mug every day that's just sad all the time? Listen, you're going to go over bumps. Marriage is going to bring out the worst in both of you. Can you smile when the chips are down? Last. In the war of life, does she consider herself command and control? Does she understand the chain of command? Well, those are just a few things. We had a lot more we could talk about. But listen, young people, the Lord is coming soon. The Lord is coming soon. And He wants people who know how to have godly marriages, how to reflect the relationship that Christ has with His church. Men, it's time to be leaders in your homes. We didn't have time to talk about discipline. We are charged to be disciplinarians in the home, not the wives. We need to understand these things. Get back into your Bibles. Ask the Lord to work in your lives. And young ladies and young men, follow the counsel. Follow the way that God has, and God will bless. God has a wonderful plan. Remember, I'm going to leave you with these words. God has a dream. Satan has a nightmare. You have a choice. Father in heaven, thank you for this time we could spend together. Lord, marriage, courtship, practical Christianity, they're all tied up together. Lord, please guide us as we contemplate these things. Lord, this is such an important decision, for it reflects what heaven wants to be to your church. 
Lord, help us to keep these things ever before us. Guide each one of these precious young people who have not yet found a spouse. Those who have found a spouse, may it be a marriage built upon heavenly principles. For those of us who are old-timers, may we continue to grow in your grace and make our marriages even more of an example for these young people that we can be a savor of life unto life for them. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.